Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. work on enterprise, you know, as I was mentioning, I worked on the virtual DSP. Uh, the onboarding usually looks like that on the website. Again, get in touch. Looks pretty easy. It's just a button and maybe there's a, you know, a contact form that is as easy as some of the ones you have seen. But that really triggers a much more complex process. That is just the very beginning of a very long and usually extremely painful process to actually onboard a customer. You're going to be reached out by a sales representative who's going to ask you if you have high-level requirements or give you a demo, and then you start conversations about you know, the actual details of the platform, does it meet your needs. If you're actually a large buyer, you'll have your own requests and say, you need to build those three features, otherwise I'm not going to sign the contract. Or I sign the contract, but those three features are there. So if you're not going to build them, I'm not going to pay you. And then once all of that is okay, you move into pricing conversations, you move into legal conversations where the actual terms you sign are not standard. There's two, you know, two teams from two different companies arguing with each other. And that process, again, takes several months. The bigger your customers, the longer they take. Um, so it can be you know, extremely painful and definitely not self-serve. In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. Uh, today, I'm going to put you to sleep talking about enterprise product management. Uh, or hopefully not. <laughs> so first of all, a little bit about myself. Um, I started my career uh, at Yahoo. I was still in, uh, in college when I joined them in uh, the Barcelona office, uh, working on ad operations and uh, business intelligence as an intern. And then it became a full-time job for a few years. And then uh, after that, I moved to the headquarters in Sunnyvale uh, in the Bay Area as a product manager in their ads and data organization, at the time working on the Brightroll DSP, which was an enterprise software for uh, buying ads uh, on, the, uh, on the Yahoo marketplace and third-party marketplaces. Um, I've done it for a couple of years, uh, and then two and a half years ago, I joined uh, Snapchat uh, as well in the monetization org. Uh, my main responsibility there was building Ad Manager, uh, the self-serve advertising platform that now is driving over half of the revenue uh, of the whole company. And then recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I joined Oath. For the ones who don't know what Oath is, which is usually everybody, it's the combination of Yahoo and AOL, uh, as well as all the other brands those two companies owned, including TechCrunch, Huffington Post, Tumblr, uh, and many more. Uh, again, as part of the um, ad tech product team uh, with a focus on targeting. So today I want to talk about uh, enterprise products, a few things I've learned uh, along the way that I didn't realize uh, when, I w you know, when I started my career, but now looking back, I thought they are important uh, and would be useful to share. First of all, what does enterprise product management even mean? Uh, I think we can all agree on the basics. 
there's consumer products and there's business products. I think the definition of each is pretty clear and we know how to recognize them. I think we also agree that enterprise products are a subset of business products, but how to define the subset is actually not that easy. In fact, I tried to do some research and I couldn't find a definition uh, that seemed you know, comprehensive enough or that I could you know, make my own. Uh, in fact, I did make my own. Um, I, I'm defining or trying to define enterprise products as the products that require a human to be sold or to be bought. Uh, a lot of enterprise website companies on their website don't have a sign-up button. They have a reach out, contact us, call us, request a demo. Uh, that's because usually enterprise products require a degree of customization and sophistication that is unique to each individual customer. Uh, and for that reason, it's very hard to have a solution that out of the box, $500 a month works for everybody. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's a sales team behind them. There's an account management team behind them. Uh, and, you know, they're not basically self-service. Um, so a few things I've learned. First one sounds super obvious. It wasn't to me uh, when I started this career is it's actually incredibly hard to be a user of your own product. Uh, taking Snapchat, consumer product, the only requirement you have to be a Snapchat user is to own a phone. Fairly easy, zero barriers of entry, almost zero. Um, another consumer product, Yahoo Finance, you only have to own or just care about stocks. You don't even have to have a phone. There's a website as well. So incredibly easy to become a user of a, one of those products and learn about the consumer experience as well. Now, when it comes to an enterprise product, this is uh, Greenhouse, is a uh, recruiting software for large enterprises. The barrier to become a user is owning a business that hires tens or hundreds of people, uh, and that restricts you know, your ability to learn what a user feels uh, when using those products quite a lot. Um, so it's, it's kind of an issue if you are a product manager or an enterprise product that you don't know, uh, but I realized that I turned this into a strength for my, my career. Um, the only reason I got my first internship at Yahoo is because at the time Yahoo was using a technology called uh, Right Media that uh, they used internally and they licensed to a few hundred companies around the world. I happened to intern at one of those other companies. And so when I applied for an internship at Yahoo, the interview had two questions for me. First question, do you really have experience in our software? I said, yes. Second question was, when can you start? That was it. It wasn't my being a leader or amazing team player. It wasn't my proficiency in Microsoft, Excel, and Word or PowerPoint that I had on my resume. Turns out everybody has those on their resume. The only thing that stood out and the only reason why they called me and they hired me with two questions was I actually knew already their software. That was the only thing that distinguished me from all the other people who applied. And then the second time I used it in my career, was when I transitioned from, from a business role into a product role. At a time, I managed millions of dollars of digital advertising budgets through this software. I knew exactly what it did well, what it didn't do well. When Yahoo decided to invest in a new platform, I went to uh, Sunnyvale for a week discussing all the requirements that the European business had. And at the end of the week, the team looked at me and said, listen, do you just want to come over and build it yourself? Like, you know a lot about this stuff. And we don't have people with this specific knowledge in our team. Um, and so while it's very hard to be a user of your own product, if you do have some knowledge 
of enterprise products is actually a great way to move into a product role because that knowledge is incredibly valuable and rare for enterprise products, more than you know, other business products or consumer products. The second thing I learned is that user and users and customers are not the same person. And again, it sounds fairly obvious, but it wasn't at the time for me. I'm taking another product that I'm a user of, Fortnite. I'm sure many of you know it or have heard about it. Uh, I also bought the battle pack. All my friends were uh, you know, making fun of me for having no skins, so I had to upgrade. And uh, I'm both the user and the customer uh, of that product. Um, another product I use heavily is Gmail. I have a, an email address uh, powered from another website, so I'm the user of that product. I also pay a monthly subscription fee to power my email address, and so I'm both the user and the customer. Most of the times, when you work on consumer products, you actually don't even hear both terms. If, if the people pay, they are customers. If your product is free, they are users. They're never both, you know, or sometimes they get used interchangeably, but really they don't mean anything different. Uh, when it comes to enterprise products, like the work, the one I'm working on right now, those are actually very different people with very different objectives. And what's important is every time I'm building new features or products, I always have to think about both of them. Am I building for the chief marketing officer that is gonna make the decision to buy this product or not? Or am I building for the media buyer once, it, once the CMO has decided to use this product and I have to make that person's life easier to be day in and day out in the software? Or do I have to build for both? You know, who am I building for and what do they care about that's different from each other? Uh, there's a reason why my Bitmoji has an engagement ring that is one of the few uh, consumer products that I could think of that actually has this distinction. The person buying the engagement ring the customer is actually not the user by definition because that's, that product is bought to be given to somebody else. And so there's, there's some products on consumer that follow uh, those characteristics, but it's fairly rare. While again, on enterprise, this incre is incredibly common. And so keeping in mind those two different personas is incredibly useful as you develop new products. The third thing I learned is, uh, and again, I mentioned it early, the onboarding is not self-serve. If you're Snapchat, um, the onboarding looks like this. You put in your name, your surname, and then click in that box, you're accepting terms and creating an account. Super easy, it takes five seconds. Anybody can do it, no assistance needed. Yahoo Finance, not even that. You download the app, you can be logged out. If you log in, you can start you know, tracking stocks and upload your portfolio and get notifications, but none of that is needed. You just need to download the app and you're in, super easy. When you work on enterprise, you know, as I was mentioning, I worked on the Brightroll DSP. Uh, the onboarding usually looks like that on the website. Again, get in touch. Looks pretty easy, it's just a button and maybe there's just, you know, a contact form that is as easy as some of the ones you have seen, but that really triggers a much more complex process. That is just the very beginning of a very long and usually extremely painful process to actually onboard a customer. You're gonna be reached out by a sales representative who's gonna ask you if you have high level requirements or give you a demo, and then you start conversations about you know, the actual details of the platform, does it meet your needs? If you're actually a large buyer, you'll have your own requests and say, you need to build those three features, otherwise I'm not gonna sign the contract. 
or I send the contract, but it, those three features are there. So if you're not going to build them, I'm not going to pay you. And then once all of that is okay, you move into pricing conversations, you move into legal conversations where the actual terms you sign are not standard. There's two, you know, two teams from two different companies arguing with each other. And that process, again, takes several months. The bigger your customers, the longer they take. Um, so it can be you know, extremely painful and definitely not self-serve. Why is that important? Because some of the support roles, I'm sure you've all seen this feature before, but some of those support roles, they're not just helpful to your success. They're crucial to your success. There's no growth and customers if there's no sales. There's no growth and customers if there's no legal team that reviews those edits that the other team is sending you of things they want to change before, before signing the contract. So it's incredibly important to be you know, friendly with other teams and build strong relationships with them and, uh, and be great at working with all of them. Again, most of those roles exist for business products and consumer products, but many of them are just support roles. Or some of them don't even exist. Again, you don't need a salesperson for the Snapchat app. Uh, so the relationship that you build with other teams inside a company are way, way more important for enterprise products because they are the enablers of your product, but also the gatekeepers. And if you have bad relationships with them, it doesn't matter how good your product is, nobody's going to buy it because guess what? Somehow they're going to end up blocking you. Another thing I learned is that uh, the new features testing and release can be very different, especially when you touch UI and UX. Uh, so another very famous consumer product, Facebook Messenger. Uh, I just went on Twitter the other day and saw a random user spotting an A-B test. Has anybody seen this feature? How does it work? Am I the only one seeing it? Is it live for everybody? So this is a clear example of A-B testing, right? And that's the classic interview answer when somebody asks you, how do you release? Oh, easy, I'm gonna do an A-B test. I'm going to measure the lift, you know, I'm going to prove there's lift and everybody's happy. Um, it's actually one of the most solid ways, um, you know, to release products and measure success. Uh, I don't want to say that it solves all the problems. There's actually a lot of problems with A-B testing and to do A-B testing well, uh, it takes a lot of effort and uh, I'm, that deserves its own presentation. So uh, all I want to say is even A-B testing is not that easy and that straightforward. There's a lot of challenges with it. Uh, but especially for enterprise products, it's not an option. I was chatting the, chatting the other day with one of my uh, best friends, uh, who is, who's a PM at Cornerstone, another company that does uh, HR software, especially tailored towards enterprises. And I was asking him, like, listen, I've, I've done UI a little bit in, in my career, and I was ever able to A-B test products. Is that something you would do? And he looked at me and said, are you crazy? Can you imagine if one of my Fortune 500 clients has half of the company with one version of the software and the other half with a different version? Like, I will get fired for even suggesting that. Um, now, not to say that, again, it's impossible to A-B test. In fact, I may be testing more right now when I work on science products where, you know, it's just a tweak in the algorithm. But when it comes to UI and UX, it's actually very difficult. And the takeaway that I learned from this is it becomes incredibly important to pick and measure KPIs based on how the features are released. I can't measure myself on, on uh, a goal myself on Lyft if I can't measure Lyft because I can't test Lyft. 
Uh, and so other metrics, especially again, when releasing UIs for enterprise products become more important. Uh, adoption, you know, I'm launching a new feature. Is it even being used? Clearly, if it's not being used, you know, there's no value in what I'm doing. Is it being used to the levels that I was expecting? Are my users or customers happy about it? Do I have a way to collect feedback through a survey, through my sales team, through some analytics that I can get uh, from the application they're using? Uh, regardless of what you choose, it's very important that it's based on you know, the way the product is released and what is actually measurable. Otherwise, it becomes a huge conflict where you, know, you have your own metrics, they're kind of subjective, nobody trusts them because your methodology is flawed, and then nobody will ever agree if what you did actually drove happiness or revenue or engagement or whatever you're trying to optimize uh, for that specific feature. The last thing I learned, um, and this is very controversial, uh, is that in general, for enterprise products, a backlog of features is always higher priority than a backlog of usability uh, and UI improvements. And that's because, you know, Enterprise companies are heavily driven by revenue, short-term or long-term, but it's revenue. And so every feature has a price tag based on the engineering estimates and a revenue tag. How much money can we make if we build this? It's very hard to prove money contribution for UI or UX features because if you go back to the previous topic, the CMO most likely doesn't care or even know if your workflows are actually efficient for his team or not. The users care, but not the people who write the check. Uh, and also, even if the users care, they have to use that software once the contract is signed. If it takes them an hour a day instead of 30 minutes, you know, they're still going to do it. Uh, my example here was I recently booked a travel to the East Coast. I'm visiting two, um, two remote offices there. Uh, and this is what I had to do in the, in the enterprise travel like booking software that my company uses. I had to configure the destinations for a multiple, you know, multi-destination trip, and then I had to select uh, when I wanted to depart or arrive. There were both options, and then you know the system has to scan and return only the preferred airlines, which I'm assuming my company has deals with or rebates or discounts or whatever. Uh, and then I had to pick between those, but only for the specific class of flight that my company allowed me to, based on the distance. And then once I did all of that, I had to do the exact same for the hotels. And, you know, there's rules based on how far the hotels are. You know, if they're closer to the office, I have more budget because maybe I'm not going to use a, a taxi or an Uber to get there. So there's all those complicated rules that the software has to support. Once I configure everything and I finally get to something, you know, that is good for me and passes all those crazy rules uh, that are, you know, implemented in the system, magic error. I didn't have a corporate credit card. I didn't know I needed one. I didn't need one when I left. I could just use mine and expense. So I wasted, you know, a good 20 minutes without knowing that I actually could not complete my transaction. Now, if this happens on consumer, you're going to rage quit, throw your laptop away, never go to the website ever again, and probably talk for years about how bad that experience was. Now, when it comes to enterprise, you know, I, I kind of feel uh, their pain, like, they have so many other priorities to make my company happy and implement all those rules and all those checks so everything can be monitored and policed and the cost can be managed, that this is probably the last of their priorities. I'm sure there's a task in some Jira board or Trello board somewhere 
that you know somebody filed and said, hey guys, we should probably put a pop-up at the very beginning to at least let those people know that sure, they can see the options, but they can't book. And that team never gets there because there's so many other competing priorities that they have to get to first that this type of you know, feedback uh, from UI never gets implemented. Now, why is that important for an enterprise product manager? Because it means that focusing on UI and UX when you're building features is even more important to me than it is on consumer because you never have a chance to get back at it. So if what you ship is just good enough and it's not great, that's fine because most times, like in this case, good enough is an acceptable bar. So if you ship something and the experience is just good enough, guess what? It's going to be just good enough for another year or two years or three years. And even if you know exactly what it would take to make it great, you'll never get the resources because good enough is good enough. And so if you really focus on making it great at the first shot, then you solve this problem. Rather than waiting, you know, what usually happens is everything is good enough until the experience across the board deteriorates so much. And then the CMOs start screaming at you because all their users now complain and they become very vocal. And then at that point, usability, usability becomes a revenue blocking issue. And then the platform has to go through an entire redesign. And, you know, you spend one quarter just planning and doing user research and redesigning everything. And then one quarter implementing. You do nothing else for six months. There's no other features. And so it's, it's a very painful and expensive problem, right? Again, focusing on having the best possible experience on your first shot saves you all that debt that you'll have to pay later in the future at a much, much higher cost. Uh, and so, you know, some people think like, oh, why do you care so much about the details? Like, you know, it's fine. As long as the users can do it, they'll do it. Uh, but again, I see it as a much bigger pain. Like, if I don't fix it now, I'll never be able to fix it later. I have to get it right now. I have to do even more research and user testing before this feature goes out. Uh, or, you know, some companies do it, and uh, that's another way of balancing it. You say, hey, I don't care about the feature backlog. I always allocate a small percentage of time uh, to usability improvements. And that's a way to kind of like save these type of small features. But again, if that's not in place, it becomes very hard to, you know, to have some low-hanging fruit improvements uh, like this one, just putting, putting, putting a pop-up at the very beginning of the flow. So... Five takeaways uh, based on all those points. The first is enterprise users' knowledge is rare and valuable. As hard as it is to get it, as valuable it is once you acquire it. And so if you're thinking about getting into product management or changing career and looking at enterprise products, the best products are going to be the ones that somehow you had a chance to use heavily in your career because that usage turns out is quite unique. Nobody in my team spent you know, a single dollar in, uh, in buying ads in one of the teams I worked on. I was the only one who did it. And so even if I didn't have a technical background or I was not an engineer or I had no product experience, that knowledge was unique enough and valuable enough to, for me to actually bring value to the team. And again, all my teams were like, you know, all my teammates were fairly technical. So actually my weaknesses didn't matter that much because there were so many other people who could help me on that front that it didn't matter. Uh, so again, incredibly valuable if you have that type of knowledge. Uh, the second thing is always keep in mind if you're, if you're building for users, for customers, or both. And if you build for both, which part of the product or features you are you know, building for your customers and which ones for your users. They have very different priorities 
sometimes conflicting priorities. And so it's very important to always keep both of them in mind. The third thing is internal stakeholders like sales, like legal, like you know the pricing team, the customer support team are critical, not nice to have. They are critical for, for growth and account activation. Without them, there is no growth. The fourth thing is sometimes testing, uh, A-B testing especially, can be hard. So it's very important to pick KPIs that are aligned with the way you can actually release software and that are um, solid for you to be able to measure your contribution. Uh, and last but not least, UI and UX are very, very important to get right on your first shot because you won't be given a second, a second shot most times. And uh, that was it. If you have any question, I'll stay around. I'm happy to answer anything. Hopefully you found it useful and you wanna pursue a career in enterprise management or you decided that after you saw this, you actually wanna stay as away as possible. Either case, I hope you find it useful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the product podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to know more about our courses and next courts, visit productschool.com. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management.